You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Advent series, God Came Near. For more information and audio content, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. So I'm not a, not a big fan of country music. I don't know if any of you are. I'm not. But I did come across this story, which I thought was pretty great. So it's a country music story. Uh, country music star Travis Tritt. He was doing an interview once, and he was talking about his early days as a musician when he was trying to break into the country music scene. And he said at the time he would play a lot of small bars, and some of these bars were pretty rough. And uh, more than once, fights would break out in the bar while he was doing his set. And so one time when this, uh, one of these brawls broke out at a bar that he was playing at, he tried something, and it worked, and so it became his standard response whenever people started getting rowdy and out of hand and fights were starting at the bars he was playing at. And here's, here's a quote from this article I read. He said, just when things started getting out of hand, when the bikers were reaching for the pool cues and the rednecks were heading for the gun rack, I'd start playing Silent Night. And it didn't matter what time of year it was, I even did it in July, but as soon as I started playing Silent Night, grown men would stop what they were doing, they would calm down, fights would stop, sometimes people even started crying. And I would just stand there and I would sweat and I would play a whole set of Christmas songs, no matter what time of year it was, and it would always calm the crowd right down. Interesting, right? Well, that may have worked for Travis Tritt, but interestingly, the very first Christmas songs, first Christmas carols, we might call them, had probably the exact opposite effect of that. Rather than calming people down, the first Christmas carols were revolutionary in nature. Rather than calming the human spirit, these songs were explosions of emotion that came from hearts that were so full that they couldn't contain it any longer. And the messages of these songs were incendiary in nature. One Anglican bishop instructed missionaries to poverty-stricken regions in India not to read the words of these Christmas songs in public because they might incite rioting in the streets. Now, what kind of Christmas songs could these be that they would start riots? Well, they were the very first Christmas songs. They're both found in Luke chapter 1. The first is called the Magnificat. The second is called the Benedictus. And they were sung by two very different people. One was a teenage girl. The other was a middle-aged man. And in these two songs, we see three things. We see who Jesus was. We see what the incarnation means for us. And we see what it does in your life if you really understand it. So let's begin by looking at the setting in which these first Christmas songs were sung. Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. I'll read from verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. This was a difficult time in history, and it was a difficult time in these people's lives personally. First of all, it was a difficult time in history. The Romans had taken over Judea, and they had appointed Herod as king. Now, Herod was not Jewish, and the Jewish people always resented having this man forced upon them and then given the title of king. It was like a slap in the face because he was not part of their royal lineage. And so they viewed him as an imposter and as a foreigner and as a puppet of Rome, and not to mention he was a very cruel ruler who treated the people very harshly. Furthermore, this was a difficult time because it had been 
roughly 400 years since God had last spoken to the people through a prophet. And so there was a real sense in which the people felt at this time that God had abandoned them. And, and in, during this time, we see this couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And they were good people, but yet they had a hole in their hearts. They had a hole in their lives. Something was missing. They were older, they were advanced in years, and they had no children. Now, in, in ancient cultures, having no children was a really big problem. It was a huge stigma. In our Western culture, we are very much career-driven. But ancient cultures, and even today, non-Western cultures, are very much family-driven. In other words, family is the whole meaning of life. It's the purpose of existence. And to not have children was considered a curse. To not be able to have children would be a stigma. It would mean that people would gossip about you. And they would wonder, what must be wrong with you? You must have some skeletons in your closet that that's, what be, that's surely what's causing you to be cursed in this way. But this couple, we look at them and we see that wasn't the case with them. They didn't have skeletons in their closet. They were righteous people who walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. They didn't have any skeletons in their closet, but yet they didn't have any children either. And this couple was really a microcosm of what was happening at large in Judea at this time. People were wondering, they were asking the question, where is God? Has God abandoned us? Does God even hear us? Does God care? Doesn't he see our situation? And I wonder about you, have you ever felt that way yourself? Have you ever wondered, where is God right now? Now's when I could really use some help, and where is God right now? And, and what can happen is that after a while, people become cynical. People become bitter. They become pessimistic. And what we're going to see is that that's actually what happened to Zechariah. He's become cynical. He's lost hope. He's become bitter and pessimistic. You can imagine, here's this man. He's devoted his whole life to serving God. He's become a priest. He's given everything. He's done everything right. He's done everything by the book. He's kept all the commandments. Even his wife, too. They've never strayed from it. They've always gone on the straight and narrow. They've never done anything wrong. And this is what he gets for it, right? His wife is barren. People gossip about him. He's stigmatized in society. People whisper about him around town that surely they're accursed because surely there's some kind of secret sin, some skeleton in the closet. Well, thanks a lot, God. After all I've done for you, this is what I get in return. Now, I know people who feel this way. I don't know if you do. I've seen people who, you know, they have this sense of, hey, I've done everything right. I've done everything by the book, and yet life has not turned out the way that I hoped it would. Life hasn't given me what I hoped that it would. Now, we don't know about Elizabeth, but we do know that Zechariah, as we'll see in a minute, he has become bitter and cynical in his heart towards God. But to make matters worse, he's a priest. That's a tough spot to be in, right? Like, what do you do if you're bitter and cynical towards God and you're the pastor, right? Especially in those days. What are you going to do? You're going to go out and get another job? It's not like you can go to community college and learn a new profession, right? It's not like Zachariah can just go out and, and get another job. He's locked in. He's older, he's pretty far along in his career, but yet the difficulties of life have caused him to become jaded. And at a time when all of society was asking the question, where is God? Why are these bad things happening to us? Why isn't God answering our prayers? Zechariah was struggling with those same questions in his own personal life, on a personal level. It's a tough spot to be in, right? You're the pastor, but you're struggling yourself in your own faith. It was a time when, uh, you know, at that time, 
When Zechariah was in that spot, that is when something big happened in his life, something that only a few select people would get to experience perhaps once in their lifetime. I'll I'll show you what that is from verse 8. Now while he, Zechariah, was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So Zechariah was chosen to be the one who would burn incense in the inner sanctuary known as the holy place in the temple in Jerusalem. Now let me explain to you what a big deal this was. There were a lot of priests in Israel at this time because being part of the priesthood was something that came through lineage. And as time went on and as the population increased, the number of priests in Israel increased. And it's estimated that at this time in Israel there were over 20,000 priests. And these priests had duties in all the towns and villages throughout Israel. But when it came to the temple in Jerusalem, the big show, with that many priests, they had to figure out a way of who would get the honor of serving there. And so what they did is they came up with a system where they divided the priests into divisions. And from these divisions, they would be on kind of a rotation. And when your rotation came up for your division, they would randomly choose one person who got to do the service in the temple. It was kind of like a raffle. And if your lot fell, then you got to be the one. But what that meant is that most priests would go their entire lives without ever getting to serve in the inner sanctuary of the temple. So this was a -a once-in-a-lifetime kind of experience. And so here's Zechariah, he's a priest, and he's struggling with his own faith. He's jaded by a lifetime of frustration. And then his division gets called up for rotation, for service in the temple, and the lot falls on him. He's chosen to go into the holy place and burn incense before the Lord. Now this is something that every priest would have waited for and dreamed of and looked forward to since childhood. You would be dreaming and thinking about what you would do, what you would say, what you would pray if you could stand in the manifest presence of God. This is as close as you could get to God this side of heaven. What would you do? Do you fall to your knees and worship? Do you use this opportunity to petition God for something? I mean, there's no guarantee that you'll ever even get to go in there, but now the lot has fallen on Zechariah. This is the big show. This is the big opportunity. All eyes are on him. It was considered such a big deal for someone to enter the holy place that what they would do is they would tie a rope around that person's ankle because there was a fear that if there was any uncleanness in this person when they entered the inner sanctuary that they would be so overcome by the holiness of God that they would drop dead right on the spot. And then you're faced with a conundrum. What do you do, right? Do you run in there and grab them? But then what if you die too? And then you just got a whole bunch of bodies piling up in the inner sanctuary, right? So they decided instead of doing that, easy solution, tie a rope around his leg, and then if something happens, we can just drag him out. Verse 10, let's see what happens. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So here it is. It's the big day. A crowd of people are gathered outside the temple for the big event. And what would happen is that two other priests would accompany the chosen priest, in this case Zechariah, they would accompany him in, and then they would leave. And when they returned, the people would know that the one priest was now in the inner sanctuary, standing before the golden altar, ready to present the incense. When the other priests returned, the people would know, now's the time. And so what the people would do, hundreds or thousands of people gathered, is they would spread their hands and they would pray silently. So that's what's happening right now. Verse 11. And there appeared to him at the angel... uh, There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. 
And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So Zechariah is standing there all alone in the inner sanctuary and suddenly he's not alone. Suddenly there's someone else there with him and this person has a message for him from God. That's what the word angel means, by the way. It means messenger. And so God has been hearing his prayers. There's, there's going to be a son Zechariah is going to have a son in his old age, and this son is going to be someone special. He's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. Isaiah the prophet had promised that before the Messiah would come, there would be one who would go before him to prepare the hearts of the people. That's who Zechariah's son is going to be. And what that means is that the Messiah is coming soon, and God has chosen Zechariah to be part of this grand event. To this cynical, jaded man living in hard times, the message is, you will be filled with joy and gladness. This is humongous news, but look at Zechariah's response in verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. That seems like a pretty legit question, right? But the thing is, it's not. And we can see that from the response that he's going to get. Because basically the tone of this, which we don't hear by just reading the words, but the tone must have been basically this. How can you expect me to believe this is true? He's saying, you seriously expect me to believe you? Yeah, right. No way. I don't believe it. This is the cynical response of a jaded man because look how the angel responds to him in the next verse. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to you to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which, were, which will be fulfilled in time. Gabriel's like, what is your deal? Like, do you not notice, like, I'm an angel I, I live where God lives, right? Like, I just brought you the greatest news ever. And your response is cynicism? Your response is unbelief? You know what? Why don't you just keep your mouth shut for a little bit, and I'm going to help you do it. That's what he says. Verse 21. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering at his delay at the temple. The people are thinking, Zechariah must have dropped dead in there, and it's time to just drag him out, right? Verse 22. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when this time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he, took, when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. You see, for Elizabeth, having this baby didn't just mean that she had the joy of having a child. It was so much more than that. It was about her reputation in society. By having a baby, her stigma, her reproach is taken away. It would have been a great relief. But now the scene's going to shift from the jaded middle-aged man, a priest who's struggling with his faith. Now we switch scenes to a poor teenage girl in a backwater town. Please read with me from verse 26. 
In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So the way that marriage worked in those days was that many times marriages would be arranged by parents even when their kids were still small children. I'm sure that some of you parents, you know, you know what that's like. You've joked around with your friends. They have kids the same age as your kids, you know, and you joke around how your kids should get married when they grow up even though they're just toddlers. Wouldn't it be great if our families could be joined together like that and our kids could get married? Well, in that culture and in many non-Western cultures to this day, people actually do that for real. And so children will be promised to each other in marriage even in childhood. And when they get to the age when they can be married, in that culture, what they would do is a betrothal. A betrothal is a lot like an engagement, but it's got one key difference, and that's this, that it was legally binding. So in our culture, it's not uncommon for people to get engaged, and then maybe they break off the engagement for, before the wedding, and that's no big deal. But in that culture, if you were betrothed to someone, in order to break off the engagement, you actually had to get a legal divorce. And so traditionally during betrothal, this was the time when the groom would be preparing the house for the family to live in. And so here's Mary. She's betrothed to Joseph, but their marriage hasn't been finalized yet. She's most likely somewhere 14, 15, 16 years old, which is a common age for girls to get married at that time. And she's living in Nazareth, which is the armpit of Israel. All right, so check out what the angel says to this girl, verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So she's confused. She's like, who are you talking to, greatly favored of the Lord? Is there someone standing behind me? Because clearly you're not talking to me, right? Verse 30. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, and he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month, uh, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. You know, Mary seems to ask a similar question to what Zechariah asked, right? How can this be so? Isn't this physically impossible? The difference, though, is that Zechariah's question came from a place of cynicism. Mary's question comes from a place of honest curiosity. She's like, wow, how is this going to happen? Now, it's interesting when you consider these two people, Zechariah and Mary, and you think about what this news of the coming baby would mean for each of them. For Zechariah, this child would have been good news really. I mean this would be the taking away his reproach. His reputation will be restored. Any questions that anyone ever had about his character, they'll all be taken away. But for Mary, it's just the opposite. For Mary, having this child would be uh, taking on reproach in the community. It would mean being stigmatized. She's pregnant before her marriage is finalized. It would mean that for the rest of her life, there are going to be rumors. Every time, you know, she walks by or her child walks down the street, people are going to whisper to each other. People would doubt and question. They would slander her character for the rest of her life. 
That is what this child means for her. It would be a very hurtful thing. And who knows how Joseph's going to respond at this point, right? Who knows? He's probably, he knows he's not the father. Is he going to divorce her? Is he going to break off the engagement? Is she going to have to be a single mom? I mean, it's hard enough in our day to be a single mom, but in that day, we're talking scarlet letter type stuff. And that's why the response of Mary is so incredible. She says, behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. I love that. Think about this. This is Mary. She's taken on a lot by taking on this child. And here's what she says. If this is God's plan for my life, if this is how God has chosen to glorify himself in my life, then let it be done. I'm happy to serve God in whatever way he so chooses. Mary was willing to take on reproach. She was willing to take on hardship if this is the way that God had chosen to use her life in his plan. This this is a place of complete surrender to the will of God for her life where you say, God, my life is a penny in your pocket and you can spend it anywhere and any way you'd like. And my greatest pleasure will be found in doing what you've placed before me to do. Now, how about you? Think about that. Would you be able to respond the way that Mary responded? I think there are a lot of people who would say, God, I'll do anything for you as long as it doesn't include sacrifice, pain, uh, sickness, financial cost, or anything else that doesn't seem like something I'd choose for myself, right? But anything else, I'll do it. But not Mary. That's not her. She's willing to take on reproach. She's willing to take on suffering because she understands that the coming of this child means something that will make all of it more than worth it. That's this this one who she will take on reproach for, this one who she will suffer for, he is going to come. He is coming in order to take on her reproach, in order to take on her suffering and to meet her greatest need. Now go down with me a few verses and we're going to see the response of Mary to this amazing news. What she does is she bursts forth in song. It says this, verse 46, Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation and he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. Mary's song speaks to these questions that Christmas presents to all of us. Who is Jesus and what does the incarnation mean for you and me practically? So first of all, who is Jesus? Mary tells us he is God and he is our Savior. In fact, that's what his name name means. That's the significance of the name. His name Jesus, Yeshua, it means God saves. In Matthew's gospel, the angel says explicitly that the reason he's to be given the name Jesus is because, quote, he says, because he will save his people from their sins. Mary recognizes this. She rejoices in this child, not only that he will be the Savior, but that he will be her Savior. I mean, can you imagine this? Carrying a child who will be your Savior. I think it's incredible that Mary realizes, recognizes her need for a Savior. You see, there's no, there's no reason to rejoice in a Savior unless you understand first that you need a Savior. It'd be kind of like this. It'd be kind of like if you're flying on an airplane and the stewardess comes to you and says, hey, uh, we've got these 
parachutes. They're awesome. All the cool people are doing it. They're, they're really nice, and if you put one on, it'll feel like you're getting a hug all the time, right? So just put on this parachute, and you say, hey, sure, cool. I, uh, I like being cool, so I'm going to try that out. And if you say it's good, then, then why not? I'll give it a try. And so you put on the parachute, and after a few minutes, you start to feel kind of cramped. I mean, you've got less room now in your seat, and it gets kind of itchy, and you're getting hot and sweaty. And then you notice that other people across the aisle are kind of, you know, their children pointing at you and snickering because you look weird because you're wearing a parachute. And so you push the button and call the stewardess over, and you say, hey, you know, you told me this was going to be great, but I don't feel so great right now wearing this parachute. So you know what? I'm done with this. You can have it back. I don't want it anymore. But what if instead the stewardess were to come down the aisle and tell you, hey, uh, you know what? This airplane's going to crash. I'm not sure when, but it's going to be fairly soon. So uh, it's definitely going to happen, though. But the good news is we've got some parachutes, so let me know if you want one. In that case, people are going to be tripping over each other to get a parachute. In that case, it doesn't matter if wearing a parachute is fashionable or if it makes you any more or less comfortable. It doesn't matter if anybody else thinks it's cool. Who cares? about that stuff. Who cares if this plane's going down and I've got a parachute? You see, the fact is that Jesus, the fact that Jesus came to be your Savior, it doesn't really hit home. It's not actually good news until you first come to grips with the fact that you desperately need to be saved. The good news of Christmas is only good news when you come to grips with the fact that you're broken and that you're lost and that you need salvation. When you come to grips with that fact, it's then that the news of Jesus takes on real significance. The news that Jesus has come to be your Savior, that's when it becomes truly good news. So Mary understands this. She understands that she needs a Savior, and her spirit rejoices to know that her Savior is coming into the world. How about you? Do you know that today? Do you know that you need a Savior? Because if you do, then and only then can you appreciate really who Jesus is and what he did for you. Then and only then can you know the true joy of Christmas, that God came to give you the greatest gift, the thing you need more than anything else, but had no way of getting on your own. The second thing that Mary's song tells us about Jesus is that the salvation he brings is purely by God's grace, not because of any of our merits. She says, who am I that God would choose me? I have nothing to bring to the table, but he has chosen me. He has placed his love upon me. He has shown me favor. Wow, that's grace. The next question, of course, what does the incarnation mean for us practically? Not only that your Savior has come, but what the incarnation means is a complete upheaval of the status quo. A complete upheaval of the status quo. If God's ultimate expression of greatness was humbling himself, if God's love and power is expressed in its greatest form by him trading omnipotence for impotence, if his greatest act of power is coming and laying down his life, if his greatest act of love is trading a crown of glory for a crown of thorns, for trading a a throne for a cross, if that is how he used his greatness, if that is how he used his power, if that is how he expressed his love, if these are the things that he values, then what that means is that you and I need to completely rethink and reevaluate the things that we value, the things that we prioritize. One of the things that the incarnation means for us practically, which Mary sings about in this song, is a great upheaval. She says, The proud and the mighty are brought low, and the humble are exalted. The hungry are filled, and the rich are sent away empty. You see, this is describing a radical upheaval of commonly held values and existing power structures. That's what the incarnation means practically. 
It means there's a new standard for measuring greatness, a new standard for measuring value and success and strength than what is commonly held in the world. And if we really take hold of these truths, it will affect every area of how we live our lives, from how we value other people to the goals that we set for ourselves. And I think that's especially pertinent here at the end of the year as we come into the new year. We're now getting past Christmas and attention begins to turn to our goals and, and what we would like to do differently in 2016. This is a time of year when people do a lot of assessment of patterns of their lives that they've gotten into, things that they want to change. People start thinking at this time of year about new patterns of eating, new patterns of entertainment, new patterns of sleep and exercise, new patterns of relating to your spouse, new patterns of seeking God, new patterns of giving. Those are good things. That's a good thing to do. I encourage you to do that. Assess the patterns in your life. Think about what upheaval needs to take place in your life. And let me encourage you as we come into this new year, in the spirit of this discussion, the coming of God into the world represents a great upheaval of values from what is commonly held in the world. May we be those who create new patterns for our lives which reflect these values, which we see championed by God in the incarnation. New definitions of what makes for success, for what makes for real greatness and true strength. May we pursue those values and make them the patterns for our lives in this new year and beyond. Now let's look at the song of Zechariah. Come with me to verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loose, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came upon all the neighbors, and all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea. The name John, by the way, it means God is gracious. And that's what this boy's life is going to be about, proclaiming the good news that God has been gracious and sent a Savior, Christ the Lord. In verse 67, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace." This was a prophecy, but it was in the form of a song that Zechariah sung. And I want you to notice that, that after months of silence, when Zechariah finally gets his voice back, what does he want to do? He wants to sing. <coughs> the silence gave him a chance to think. And now his cynicism has turned to overwhelming joy and thankfulness for what God has done. 
Because God has done even more than he would have asked or even imagined. He asked for a child, but God has given him something greater. God has given him a savior. Zechariah's song isn't even primarily about his own son, nor is it about himself. When Zechariah's voice comes back, he wants to sing for joy because God has given him more than a son. God has given him a savior. So what does Zechariah's song tell us about who Jesus is? He says there in the first part, he has God come to us to redeem us. The first verse he says, the Lord God of Israel has visited us to redeem his people. That's who Jesus is, the visitation of God in order to redeem us. And what does the incarnation mean for us here in Zechariah's song? It means this, that we can have the hope of eternal life. He says, to those who sit in darkness, in the shadow of death, a light has come. We talked about this on Christmas Eve. These are the words of the prophet Isaiah about us, people who sit under the death shadow, people who are destined for eternal death. To us, through Jesus Christ, through this Messiah, a door has been opened to eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. So here's something to think about. Christians do a lot of singing, right? We do a lot of singing here. Christians as a whole do a lot of singing. At Christmas time, especially, there's a lot of singing that goes on. In your homes, we sing a lot of Christmas songs. And singing, when you think about it, it's a pretty interesting phenomena, isn't it? I mean, what is it that causes a person to stop talking and to start singing? Why is it that Mary and Zachariah, when they hear this news about Jesus, their response is to sing? Socrates taught for 40 years, but his life and teaching never inspired any music. Plato taught for, for 50 years, and his teachings, no matter how insightful they might have been, they did not cause the human soul to blossom with life and break forth in song. But Jesus lived for 33 years, and only three of those years he spent teaching. And yet his teachings and his life and his actions have inspired the souls of Raphael and Michelangelo. They inspired the hearts of Hayden and Handel and Bach. They have inspired new songs in every generation. The overflow of thankful hearts for whom it's not enough to just speak about these things. We want to sing because our hearts are overwhelmed by this good news. That though we are more broken and sinful than we even know, we're more loved by God than we could have ever dared to dream. And so God has shown his love by coming to us and saving us. And singing is a human response too. It is the expression of our most profound emotions, whether positive or negative. These are the things that move us most deeply. That is what causes us to sing. That's why people who are in love sing songs about it. That's why mothers sing songs to their little babies. It's the overflow of a heart that is full and can't contain it. And it's incredible that the first people who hear the gospel, the good news that's come into the world, here's their response. They want to sing. Zechariah gets his voice back. What does he want to do? He wants to sing. When Mary hears about God's grace to her, what does she do? She wants to sing. Why? Because the coming of God into the world has touched them at the deepest places, the deepest longings of their hearts. And the same is true for us. The longing for things to be right. In a world that gets its priorities and values so upside down and so mixed up so often, we long for upheaval of those things, for those things to be made right. We long for the salvation of our souls. We long to be set free from the shadow of death. We long to be set free from the sin, and, and we long to be, have the hope of eternal life. We long for peace. We long for redemption. And in Jesus Christ, we have received those things, now in part and soon to come in fullness. See, that's the good news of Christmas. And therefore, we should sing. It should set our hearts to sing. I told you that these songs were revolutionary in nature. So what is it about them, as we close, that was so revolutionary? 
First of all, they declare that a Savior has come. If a Savior has come, you know what that means? It means you need to be saved from something. Do you know that? That you need to be, it means you have a problem. It means I have a problem. And we can't fix it on our own. We're not fine on our own. We need a Savior who can save us from our sins. That's hard for some people to accept. How about you? Can you accept that today? The second thing that's so revolutionary about this song is that these songs change the status quo. They tell us that we need a new pattern, a new paradigm, a new set of standards, a new set of definitions of what true greatness is, of what true wealth is, what real success is, what real value is, what true strength is. It tells us that true, that true wealth is not material, but that to be truly rich is to know God and to have every spiritual blessing in Him. The true greatness is found in serving, not in being served. The true strength is found in humility. The true success is measured by faithfulness. Let me encourage you today. Your Savior has come, and that changes everything. Let it change the way you live as we move into this new year. And may the truths of the gospel, may the hope of salvation sink deep into your heart. May you ponder them. May you let them move you to the point where you cannot help but sing for joy. We're going to do that with one final song. Would you please stand with me as we pray? Lord, we thank you for these first Christmas songs. We thank you that they're so rich and full of meaning. And we thank you for what they mean for us, what they tell us about who you are, and what they tell us about what life means in light of the fact that you've come. Lord, may this truth of the gospel, may it stir in our hearts to the point where we want to sing and we desire to let it be known that our hearts are overflowing with great joy. And Lord, would you do that? Would you make our hearts full with the knowledge of the gospel this day and as we move into this new year? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Advent series, God Came Near. For more information and audio content, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com.